I'm Andrew Ford. This is The Music Show. We're listening to the trumpet of Peter Knight. Actually, we're listening to more than just the trumpet of Peter Knight. This is from his new album, Shadow Phase, and Peter's not only on trumpet, but also an old Revox reel-to-reel, a couple of synths, and a harmonium he borrowed from a friend. This is his first solo release for 10 years, which may or may not be coincidence, because that's also the length of time he's been leading the Australian Art Orchestra. That was founded by the pianist and composer Paul Grabowski back in the early 1990s. It's an ensemble that successfully defies definition. It's a core of jazz musicians who come together with artists from a range of other genres and cultures to do quote-unquote art music. Well, Peter is at the end of his tenure and we'll talk to him about that and also about where he's going next and we'll introduce him with this track from Shadow Phase, Wordless Song for Anya.
Mishima translates the Hogakura. The samurai <coughs> wakes up in the morning and they think of ten ways of dying. Quartered, garroted, doing the harakiri, all sorts of different ways, shot by an arrow, and after that, they spend a wonderfully relaxing day. <laughs> I think that's how all human beings live. A wordless song for Anya, that is the trumpet of Peter Knight, and it's a pleasure to welcome Peter back to the music show. Hello, Peter, how are you? I'm well, thanks. It's great to be here. Anya, let's talk about her. That's her voice at the end. Yeah, Anya Warwitz is a dear friend of mine for many years and a teacher and mentor. At one stage, I studied creative writing at RMIT and she was uh, my short story teacher. And she really changed my approach to creativity and that also impacted on my music greatly. And subsequent to my kind of contact with her, I changed my approach to, to music making and my approach to composition. And um, we saw quite a lot of each other during lockdown. She lived by herself. And then sadly, she passed during that time um, and on the album that I was making at the time, which is Shadowface. Did you talk to her about the fact that her teaching of creative writing had affected the way you improvise, the way you play the trumpet? I did, actually. We, we talked a lot about the connections between poetry, you know, words more generally than just poetry, and musicality. And Anya was not a musician, but she was very engaged with the processes of music. And so she was quite fascinated by what I do when I make music, and as was I with her process, which is, you know, she wrote a lot about dreams. She was, she had a very refined automatic writing process. So that kind of notions of flow and how flow relates to structure were things that we talked about quite a lot. I mean, automatic writing, that sounds as though it might be very close to improvising. What did she mean by that? Uh, what she meant, I think, um, and I really do wish she was here to speak for herself, but um, my interpretation of what she told me was that she would put herself in a space where words would bubble up. Aspects of her subconscious would emerge through the process of writing. So for her, writing was thinking. Writing wasn't some kind of transposition of thoughts. It was actually the process of thinking was the writing. And is that, you know, in a nutshell, what you do when you put the trumpet to your lips? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I think the relationship between improvisation and composition is interesting. And I, I think of it as like a zooming in and zooming out process. And um, yeah, improvisation is a bit like um, automatic writing. I think you try to put yourself into a, a space where something might emerge that you're not expecting. I think the best improvisations, though, are ones where you're also zooming out to think about the overall structure and the relationships between the other elements that are part of the improvised moment. Although, Peter Knight, this is a solo album, it's one that's got a lot of space in it. I mean, I actually did think of Mahler at one point. Wow. There's this kind of expansive <laughs> quality to some of the music that made me think of some of his slow movements, the way they open in particular, the Fifth Symphony, for instance, that famous Adagietto.
No, I don't imagine you had Marla in mind, but you obviously think about the sonic environment in which you're going to place your trumpet. I kind of actually think of the sonic environment and also the electroacoustic environments that I create as compositions. So some of the pieces on the album feature heavily the Revox reel-to-reel tape machine. And the way that I set that up, the way that it's integrated with plugins and processes that I also employ with my computer, I kind of think of that structure as a composition because that structure will predictably produce a kind of sound and bring me to a certain space. Within that kind of compositional architecture, I I can improvise. But you're playing with them. It's not something which you have in your mind. You can actually hear these environments. Yes, that's true. And those environments uh, set up a set of processes as well. So there's an element to this music that relates to process pieces, you know. So I can't entirely predict or control what happens with the Revox. And it often surprises me when I set things up and I'm going for a particular thing. I get the sound world, I get the mode of creation, but I can't completely control the outcome. And I really love that because then it becomes this fluid process of setting something up and then being able to respond. Any piece of music involves process, but I think you're talking about something quite specific, aren't you? Yeah, I'm talking about process pieces like a lot of minimalist composers would set up a process and then just listen to it play out and that's the piece. So the music is in fact the technique behind the music, they're the same thing. Exactly, yeah, so it's very different from the process of imagining something and then putting that onto paper and then having it performed. It's setting something up and watching or listening to it play out. I described this shadow phase as a solo album. It's sort of true, but Lawrence English was there too. Yeah, Lawrence was incredibly important in the process of making this work. The album is released on his label, Room 40. He co-produced it with me, he mastered it, and he didn't just try to make my ideas better. He really brought his own ideas, and I'd made a lot of material for this album, and he helped me to shape a narrative and a focus for it. So it's probably only about a third of what I made has made it onto the album. And Lawrence's focus was fantastic for me. His generosity was something I'll always appreciate. And um, yeah, I felt like it really came into being as a result of that partnership. But it was also a long time in the making, wasn't it? Uh, I'm guessing that you took the project to Lawrence, did you, after many years of working on it, making notes, making recordings, thinking about it, and that he helped you pull it together? Was that how it happened? When I went to Lawrence, which I think was in 2019, I sent him a whole bunch of sketches and then he came back to me and said, yeah, that sounds great, let's make a record. And we agreed to do it together and then COVID hit. (laughs) And so I was able to really knuckle down each evening and work on this music. It's 10 years since you made a solo album. It's 10 years that you have been artistic director of the Australian Art Orchestra. That can't be a coincidence. Let's listen to some more music and then we'll talk about the Australian Art Orchestra.
Best music by Austin Bucket, Virtuoso Pause. Peter Knight's my guest on today's music show. That's a piece that you commissioned in your first year at the Australian Art Orchestra, and you've just announced that you're moving on. Perhaps we could talk about your time with them and, and why now you're moving on. Yeah, well, it's been an amazing 10 years. It does seem planned, <laughs> you know, the, the solo album before I became artistic director and and this one now, but it's really coincidental. But, you know, sometimes subconsciously these things kind of make sense um, and, and have um, confluence. But that piece by Austin was commissioned at the end of 2013, the end of my first year, and it was commissioned for the 20th anniversary of the Australian Art Orchestra. I was trying to really think about, well, what kind of statement do I want to make as an artistic director of this um, esteemed organisation? And I'm very proud of that decision. I think Austin's an extraordinary artist and he made a very, very interesting uh, piece in Virtuoso Pause. The title Australian Art Orchestra calls to mind the Art Ensemble of Chicago. I don't know whether that's a deliberate thing or not, but the Art Ensemble of Chicago is, you, you, you think, oh yes, they play jazz. Now the Australian Art Orchestra is full of jazz musicians, but the collaborations, uh, both under Paul and under yourself, have often been, maybe even mostly been, with musicians who come from different musical areas. Why has that been important? Paul's vision and inspiration was to make the music of the here and now here in Australia and that Australia is a place of abundance. We've got so many incredible First Nations cultures in in this country. We are in Asia and there are these extraordinary traditions um, you know, right on our doorstep. When Paul formed the Art Orchestra, that wasn't what people immediately thought of. I think, you know, people looked to the Northern Hemisphere. So in my mind, I think that made a big difference to our scene, to the way that jazz musicians in Melbourne and Sydney and all around Australia thought of what was possible. It certainly was the case for me. And I was a huge kind of fan of the Art Orchestra and of Paul. And, you know, I really wanted to honour that vision, but to do it in my own way and to make the sounds that I wanted to make, but also to look after that legacy, look after that history. Onward and upward, Peter Knight. Thank you very much for being my guest again on The Music Show. Thanks so much, Andy. It's a pleasure.
Water song from Hand to Earth featuring Peter Knight. And Hand to Earth will continue as an independent ensemble, so we'll hear more from them soon. Peter Knight's new album is called Shadow Phase and it's on the Room 40 label. You're listening to The Music Show. Anne Boyd has been a stalwart of Australian music since the early 1970s. She's a composer of a huge body of work, including operas, orchestral pieces, chamber music. A lot of it, especially the early music, was influenced by Japanese, Chinese and Indonesian music and also by the landscapes of those places and particularly by Outback Australia. Her latest opera is called Olive Pink, and that is the name of a woman who became a botanical artist and also an advocate for Aboriginal rights in Central Australia in the early 1900s. It's a follow-up to Anne Boyd's 2012 opera, Daisy Bates at Aldea, and it's the second of a planned trilogy of Australian portrait operas. Olive Pink is going to have its premiere in the garden named for her in Mabandwa, Alice Springs in collaboration with the Central Australian Women's Aboriginal Choir and the Desert Song Festival. We'll begin with some orchestral music that preceded composition of the opera, but is nevertheless inspired by Olive Pink. It's called Olive Pink's Garden. (laughs) 
Those are the opening minutes of Olive Pink's Garden by Anne Boyd, performed by the Sydney Conservatorium Orchestra, conducted by Eduardo Diaz Munoz. And it's a pleasure to welcome, after quite a while, Anne Boyd back to the music show. Hello, Anne. Oh, delighted to be back here again, Andy. I think we have to start with the obvious question. Could you, could you remind us who was Olive Pink? Uh-huh. Olive Pink was, uh, well, she was many things, actually, but she's probably best known for her garden now in Alice Springs. It's a botanical reserve for desert plants. She started as a painter and she became very interested in desert flowers, painting desert flowers, which took her out to Uldia, where she met up with Daisy Bates, and the two ladies got on very, very well, and that inflamed her already established interest in Aboriginal welfare and social justice. And she went back to Sydney and studied anthropology, and then she went out and, and worked with, originally, firstly, the Aranda people, who live in and around the Alice Springs area, quite a large country, actually. But there was an already established uh, a linguist and anthropologist who'd been born at Hermansburg, a man called T.G.H. Strelo. And he wasn't very pleased with Olive and he kind of made life very difficult for her. So eventually she ended up working with the Walpri, which are another uh, another country uh, bordering onto the Aranda Territory. So, so she had this connection to these two Aboriginal groups. But eventually her research work as an anthropologist, the funding just dried up. She didn't have enough support. So she came back to live in Alice Springs in the early 50s. And eventually she found herself living on the other side of the Todd River, being driven out of town and set up the garden, which still exists today. And some of the plants she planted are still there, which is quite amazing. <laughs> I can see how the garden would inspire an orchestral piece, but operas are meant to be about, you know, murder and revenge and love triangles. So what made you think that Olive's life was going to be the subject of an opera? Well, I think it's more to do with Olive, the person. She was very, well, she was a very volatile person, very emotional, very eccentric. And I suppose, you know, judged by normal standards, many would have thought her, of her as a flawed character in the way, for example, Benjamin Britten was so obsessed with flawed characters, mm. Peter Grimes, Albert Herring and so on. And it was her character and her sense of being and her striving, being an outsider, which made her so interesting to me as an operatic character. And in that regard, she followed in the footsteps of Daisy Bates, on whom I had already written an opera. So even her letters, Andy, um, I read quite a few bit of her correspondence, and the letters that she wrote are full of oh, colour and capitals and underlinings. And when you read them, you can they almost make music in themselves. You can actually hear the, you know, the crescendos, the high points, the low points and so on. Uh, very, very emotional script. And were you able to use these in your libretto? Yes, in a sense in the background. My main source for the libretto, well, two sources really, was Julie Marcus's wonderful book, wonderful biography, scholarly biography of Olive Pink called The Indomitable Miss Pink. That's a very, very well-researched, detailed study of her life. And I was able to use that almost as a Bible while I was working on the libretto. But the other main source were the, the archives in the TGH Stralo, in the Stralo Centre, Research Centre in Alice Springs itself. And I spent 
quite a bit of time there just looking at the correspondence and actually worked, wove T.G.H. Strato as a character into the drama because he's her nemesis and you need a villain. He's not a villain, of course, but in her world he is a kind of villain. So I was able to work him into the opera as well. The other source was uh, the, the, the letters that she wrote. And then probably one of the main sources was the oral history. I mean, I met many people in Alice Springs who had wonderful stories about Olive Pink, not all of which I could use, but some of which I did use in, in uh, fashioning the libretto itself. For example, there was a group of kids that play out um, out near the gap that goes into to, um, Alice Springs itself and, and they, they, they play along the Todd River and they take their ponies down there and they disturbed the horses and who stampeded into Olive's garden and Olive was most upset because they did a bit of damage to the garden beds. <laughs> and she pursued the kids out onto a neighbour's property and they hid up trees and, and it happened to be the local lawyer who, of course, appears as another character in the opera. And it's a lovely sort of comic, bright little scene that, that leavens some of the more serious side of Olive Pink's uh, dialogues and often monologues nearly. It's a huge, huge role and I'm full of admiration for Christina Kidd who so, so heroically has taken it on. I'm imagining, Anne Boyd, that the other important character in your opera, Olive Pink, and I say this without having heard it, but knowing you and your music, mm. that the other important character is the landscape. Yes, Andy, absolutely. It is the landscape. Uh, and, and, of course, the garden itself as a living, as a living presence of the landscape because it's a collection of desert plants. And I've spent quite, I mean, going to Alice Springs now for about nearly a decade and making a couple of visits every year. I've done a lot of running around the landscape and it's kind of embedded itself in my psyche. I would say at quite a deep level now. And so when I think landscape, and as you know, I've been fascinated all my life, all my creative life, I've looked for a possible musical representation of landscape, Australian landscape, ever going right back to my student days with Peter Sculthorpe, who encouraged and fostered that interest. But it was already there. It was already present in, 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 in me in the sense that I'd grown up as a little girl on a large sheep station, just a little bit outside Longreach in central Queensland. And that landscape was imprinted on me because it was quite a lonely existence and I was separated from my mother and living with her extended family. And the landscape became almost a mother to me so that when Peter encouraged us, our interest in landscape, it got my creative world attuned. And as I grew, the I re- recognised that within landscape there's this inspirited presence. There's a spirit, there's many spirits actually that speak through the land itself. And those are the things that I've tried to embed into my own musical thinking.
I've talked to you before about this, Anne, and I, I remember having conversations with Peter Sculthorpe also about how when you started out, it was difficult to deal as a composer, as a non-Indigenous composer, with Indigenous culture and how he, and I think you, for that reason partly, turned to Southeast Asia and certainly listening to your earlier music. I mean, it's full of influences from Chinese music and Balinese music and Japanese music. And even in, you know, Olive Pink's Garden at the beginning after that fanfare-like introduction, we hear this little concertino group of flute and harp and marimba come in and it's hard not to hear echoes of Southeast Asia there too. But did you like Peter, use these other cultures as a way of trying to find a a sense of Australia in your work? Absolutely, Andy. And it happened, I mean, I still remember it vividly as we speak now. I was sitting in an ethnomusicology class in my third year at the University of Sydney and Peter put on some Japanese gagaku, the ancient court music of Japan, and played a piece called Etenraku. And as I listened to Etenraku, I was transported back into the landscape of central Queensland, my childhood, my childhood. This sense of space, incredibly slow, ritualistic music, edged with pain, with dissonance, but also with a sense of the universe impacting on the infinitesimally small individual. And it was that that I think really set the whole thing in motion for me. Um, I thought, how can this be? I mean, I remember tears rolling down my face as I reconnected to my early childhood. I'd never heard music that had represented this part of my life's experience before. Possibly the nearest composer who came to it was Mahler, but Mahler's so European and there's so much of his own Jewish ancestry in his music, wonderful music. But this represented central Queensland to me as an Australian, and it seems so odd. But I then became really engaged with Japanese culture and listened a lot to the traditional forms, to to Noor, and particularly then discovered the shakuhachi. And because I was a flute player, the shakuhachi just opened the world for me. I thought, here it is. Here is perfection. Here is the aesthetic to which I must aspire as a composer. So really, my excursion into Southeast Asia, yes, a lot influenced by Peter, encouraged by Peter, but I would say it was a natural path for me to tread as an individual. On The Music Show, I'm speaking to the composer Anne Boyd and uh, the occasion is the forthcoming premiere of her opera, Olive Pink. It's uh, a collaboration with the Central Australian Aboriginal Women's Choir. How do they fit into this, Anne? Oh, well, they're so, so important. They are the pillars of the work. They open the piece. It's their voices that are first heard. There are three main I suppose acts, you might say, but I call them scenes. Because in my idea of opera, Andy, I've gone back to the Monteverdi idea of 
opera as drama of words leading sounds rather than sounds provoking words being secondary. So words are, are, are really, really important. So they function as a kind of almost like a Greek chorus. They're the present, but they're the living presence of the indigenous peoples that have been in this area for well, 50,000, 60,000. How, how, how far now do we know? It keeps going back thousands of millennia for very, very long, 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 long time. And and then they sing, they, they frame each of the scenes and they finish the work at the very end. And they're largely um, Christian chorale repertory. And there's only one point in the work where they are embedded into a moment in the dream scene, so the climax of the dream scene, the beginning of the opera, where they sing with everybody. And that's very important because at that stage, Olive is acknowledging her life, her support from Aboriginal people, that she wouldn't have lived without the support and help of Aboriginal people. She was doing a field trip out at Yumanji and she became very, very ill and Aboriginal people carried her uh, to to safety and she sings about this and, and it's a way of acknowledging and I hope acknowledging the idea of early settlers. Uh, there's just so many wonderful stories where Aboriginal people helped, you know, the newcomers to survive and gosh, you know, it's very important that we acknowledge that and, and so that that point the, the choir is embedded into the work. Otherwise they stand as pillars, as a sort of commentary. Now why the Christian chorales? Well that's what they sing, that's that's what the, the Central Australian Aboriginal Women's Choir sing but these are very old chorales, they've been translated into their own language and the women regard this music as their music, as their music. It's their music, it's been sung by several generations, it goes back to the original Hermansburg Choir, established in the late 1880s, so it's very ancient. In fact, the choir took the chorales on a tour of Germany and they were taking these old Lutheran chorales back to their source and, and it was where they're scarcely heard now. So this was quite a remarkable sense of conservation and preservation. And, of course, I'm very, very keen on the whole notion of a two-ways process in music where we tell Australian stories not just from a Western point of view but from both Western and Indigenous point of view. Well, I don't, shouldn't even say Western. I would probably say non-Indigenous point of view and then the Indigenous point of view. And the olive pink story, as was the Daisy Bates story, is ideal because it's a shared story. It's a story shared with Aboriginal people and as the wonderful elder who's been a kind of guide to, to my thinking and my work in Alice Springs, Auntie Doris. As Auntie Doris says, well, where people share a story, there is mutual respect and the possibility of real communication and understanding across cultural boundaries. So that seemed to me ideal for the process of reconciliation, which I consider to be so very, very important in growing this nation.
That's the Central Australian Aboriginal Women's Choir. On today's music show, I'm talking to Anne Boyd, the composer of Olive Pink, and the performance venue, appropriately, is the Olive Pink Botanic Garden uh, at Mabantwa, uh, Alice Springs. I'm always very, very dubious about outdoor performances. <laughs> From my point of view, you know, the wildlife for a start. How is it going to work? Well, one of the interesting things about the orchestration of the piece, Andy, is the use of the shakuhachi. Riley Lee is coming to play, or he's already there, actually, he's rehearsing as we speak, the shakuhachi line. And you might think, well, why on earth? You know, how does this fit into it? Well, (laughs) the shakuhachi traditionally is an outdoors instrument, played outdoors, and it represents in the music the spirit of olive pink. And again, how can this be? Well, again, wandering around the olive pink gardens, as I've done countless times now, when you see the rock formations, particularly in the different lights, particularly early morning and late afternoon, but also during the day, the light is constantly changing presence in the area. You get these rock formations that remind me so much, looking down at the ground, of Japanese gardens, of Japanese rocks, of Zen rocks, of Zen gardens, because they're austere, they're they're sharply edged, there's space, there's a kind of uniformity of colour and just a sense of spirit which is just remarkable. And so, so the garden is really important. But as you say, the, 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 the difficulties of performance, the hazards of performance, I've been praying like anything to the weather gods. And thank goodness, and I, I'm touching wood as I say this, the next 10-day forecast is for no rain. So oh, let's hope. Our other enemy can be wind, but there will be wind. But um, we have ways of dealing with that. But there must be amplification and the lighting and the garden, the presence of the garden as it changes from... We start at 6.30 and we'll finish, I suppose, about 8.15 or so, 8.30 maybe. By then the garden will have gone into its nighttime zone and uh, uh, the lighting accordingly and the the movement in the, the drama of the opera, Olive sings a last long reflective aria looking back over her life as the sun sets on Mount Gillen. It will have already set by the time she sings that aria, but uh, the space, it just seems so right. And and also we have the advantage in that the garden is surrounded by these, these big ridges. So it's almost a natural amphitheatre in itself. And I'm hoping that the ridges will help with resonance of the music. Presumably as the sun goes down, you get a lot of extra sound from the insects. Oh, you, yes, you, you really do. I'm glad you raised that, Andy. The garden comes to life and there are, there's a sound of, of all sorts of insects and frogs croaking away in some of the ponds there. And I've incorporated some of those sounds into the orchestration of the work itself, hoping that uh, they might conjoin or even provoke uh, some responses, some antiphony, if you like, with the insect and, and, and natural chorus that will be taking place in the garden itself at the same time. Because a lot of the music, as you know, my music often tends to be fairly quiet. I'm hoping that this living presence will be will 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 sound there. I've actually composed quite a lot of the significant parts of the opera sitting in the garden just with my headphones and computer and at different times of the day, uh, sunset, particularly interesting early morning, mid-morning, and the sounds of the garden, I think, inevitably have found their way, and the birds, the birds, the birds, beautiful birds, bush birds, uh, their voices too have, have come, worked their way in very significantly to the orchestration, yeah. 
Well, I hope they all turn up on the on the day. Well, they won't all. They'll be different ones, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> Anne Boyd, thank you very much for being my guest again on the music show, and I hope you have a wonderful time at the premiere. Thank you so much, Andy, and it's always always such a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you. Olive Pink's Garden. Anne Boyd is headed to Olive Pink's Garden in Bandwa, Alice Springs. Details on our website. And we're going to be speaking to the shakuhachi player, Riley Lee, who Anne mentioned there, on a show in a couple of weeks. We'll ask him how it went. 
The music show is produced by C. Benedict and Ellie Parnell. Engineers this week, Simon Branthwaite and Bethany Stewart, all of them on Gadigal land, and I am on Gundungurra country. Next time on the music show, the Tuareg Desert Blues band Tammy Crest, who are about to tour to Australia for the very first time, and Marlene Cummins' extraordinary life in music ahead of her show Marlu's Blues, which is part of the Sydney International Women's Jazz Festival. We'll leave you with a mesmerising bit of new music. This is from the first release from an eight-part women's group called Isokratisis. They're all singers. They sing in Greek. They actually are Greek-speaking, but they're from Albania, from the Greek-speaking villages of Albania. And they've grown up with this music. The album is called Cry With Tears, Greek Albanian songs of many voices. And this is on Deropoli's Plain. Wow. Uh-huh.